Well, today I have all three of my children with me here in the studio here in Franklin, Tennessee, a special time of family being together. So we're going to talk. We're just going to kind of unpack some of the critical issues that I talk about every week. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we are going to take care of business today in a little bit different way. i got to have a really unusual treat in that uh, with my family being spread out as they are, it's not common that we get together. The last time was a couple years ago, but we're together right now in Franklin, Tennessee. So all of them are here, three children, more grandchildren. I lost count at some point. We'll get a tally here before the day is over. But we're going to talk about some of the things that these kids grew up with. So you'll see what it means to have grown up in the 48 days household as that message was being developed and how these kids have kind of taken it all and implied or put it to practice in their own lives. So welcome to Ashley. Hello. I am super thrilled to be on here with all of us being podcasters. Being on Dan Miller's 48 Days to Work You Love show is a real treat. All right. So Ashley is the youngest. Ashley works with me. You interact with her a lot anytime that you do something with 48 Days. And then Jared, second son. Of course, hey, before we go on, Ashley, um, where's home for you, Ashley? <laughs> My home is anywhere I can drive to right now. We are RVing the States full time and have been since October of 2016. And our big celebration was right before our two-year nomadiversary. We hit that wonderful state 48 and had to call Papa right away to celebrate. Did indeed. We shared that moment. All right. Next up is Jared, second son or second child, going from the bottom up here as we did. So Jared, introduce yourself. Tell us where you hang out. I'm Jared Angaza, and that's a little bit different. We've talked about that. Uh, and I... I'm happy to be here. I'm usually traveling around the world somewhere, floating around. Uh, we don't do it in an RV. We do it with, via suitcases and airplanes often. Um, we're now we're out in San Diego, and we're loving it out there. We're basing there now so that we can continue to spring off into wherever we want to go around the world. All right, cool. Well, we're going to talk some about you know how you're able to make choices that allow the kind of lifestyle that you guys have already implied that you're living. I mean, that's not common if you go to school, get out of college, get a job. You know, you don't typically share those kind of stories about your, your lifestyle. All right, we'll come back to that. Kevin, the elder son. Yes, I'm the homebody of the crew uh, with <laughs> my big clan up in the mountains of Colorado. And we don't, we have enough kids doing different things that it's harder to travel. We've, we've had those years, but uh, these days we stay close to home, but take the opportunities of entrepreneurship to have a flexible life and uh, help the kids at this point. It seems like so much of our focus is helping them find the things that they're interested in. And uh, that's a big focal point is finding their, their bent. And uh, I'm so grateful for the time, flexibility to let us pursue their interests. All right. Now, that's a big issue because when we talk about what our responsibilities are as parents, you know, we all feel the opportunity and the responsibility of that. And one of the things that we used as a motto when the three of you were growing up is the Proverbs 22, 6 verse, train up a child in the way that he should go and when he's old and not depart from it. Okay. And, and as we know, we kind of believe that that has been misused a lot in that parents, it's so easy for parents to superimpose their desires on children as they come up. And in our household, we, we use that through some good teaching that uh, we heard that they're more literal translation of that is train up a child in the way that he or she is bent. And then when they're old and not depart from it, that's a different meaning. So the challenge is how do you figure out how this child is really geared? How is this child bent? Now I want to look at personality styles a little bit, but uh, before we go on, we probably ought to identify, you know, how many children we're going to be talking about in this next generation. Ashley, you can probably go through this better than I. So share how many children are represented with the three of you here. 
So I just did a head count yesterday. I actually even tried to deduce what type of personality styles we had in this family. Oh my gosh. Right. And as of who all is present, we have all but one grandchild present and we have 26 people total represented here. So uh, so I have three. Ke- uh, Jared has four and one of his is not here. So his three youngest are here. One of them is still over in Rwanda where he lives. And then Kevin <laughs> is a bit of a loose term because Kevin's home, you know, as, even for being the, the homebody that he says he is, he is very tradition, very non-traditional in the fact that it's a straw bale house. And there is an open door for a lot of kids that have called his home home and family. So seven biological and a few that are adopted into the home. And so at this point, you've got, I think, 10 at home that you call your own. Five that live in the house. So that's, that's the number we go by. But I think two more are coming back. So it's a revolving door. Yeah. All right. But seven biological children and then three that are officially part of your family in addition to that. All right. So the combination of all those is 17 grandchildren and all but one are here. So we're going to have a big time the next couple of days here. Now in doing that, and Ashley, you already kind of alluded to the fact that you tried to look through you being our disc expert, you know, is this child introverted, extroverted, good with numbers, facts, people, all those kind of things that we try to do when we work with adults at 48 days to help them really understand themselves, how God has uniquely gifted them in terms of how they relate to other people, not not in terms of talent or intelligence even, but how do they relate to other people well? When do you start doing that with a child? When can you start to see some clear patterns that are going to be important that are going to be important to them all through life in terms of how they form relationships and what they're likely to be good at in terms of work. How early does that start? Oh, this takes in two different aspects. And one of the things I want to say about that is, you know, with with me homeschooling my children, we actually unschool. And when I ask the kids, where do you go to school? They say everywhere. And who is your teacher? Everyone. And so when people say, when did you start schooling your children? And I say, as soon as they were born. I mean, in the womb, their body is learning and growing. As soon as they come out, they are starting to develop who they are. And I'm developing and learning and growing along with them and figuring out their personality styles. And when we use DISC, it's not that this is a distinct label that we put on our children or any kind of box that we try to to force them into. But all DISC is, and the reason we use DISC is because of its simplicity, but personality assessments in general, you've got a lot out there with Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and DISC. And the whole key for it is not just to get those letters or numbers and figure out exactly what the makeup is, but it's to open the door to self-awareness. And that's what we love using it for, is to simply look at this and say, does this resonate with you? So instead of me pointing a finger and saying, you know, hey, Claire, you're really stuck in the details and struggling with perfectionism, I can sit down and talk with my daughter and say, you really like the details. Does that does that make sense to you? Is that something that you love? Do you want to pursue things that are more analytical? And she can confirm or she can say, I don't really know. I'm figuring myself out. So what it does is using the personality assessments at a very young age, just understanding what things will set off or trigger, you know, what motivates a different personality style or what fears may trigger more of a reaction versus a proactive response of intention. Those sorts of things create a an opportunity to not just communicate, but to truly connect with one another. Okay. And how how young? Now, you've implied that most of those things start as soon as a child is born. So do we start to see distinct personality traits, even when a child is first born? Oh, even as soon as they're old enough to kind of be aware. Now, I'd say the first week or two, you know, you're still dealing with a bit of a cloud and they're they're kind of sleeping off the jet lag from the process. But after when they start to kind of get alert and look around, I noticed at a very, very early age, like my daughter, Clara, being very analytical. She was my oldest. She was super sensitive to smell and to sound and overstimulation was a big thing for her. Whereas my second daughter, Ellie, who is a very, very social personality style at as soon as she could, 
she's craning her neck around to look as soon as we enter into a room to see who is who she can talk to and who she can catch eyes and coo to. So yeah, at a very young age, I noticed the differences in the personality styles. And they kind of grew into, I'd say around three or four is when we started to really be more confident that this is really who they are. Okay. So there we are, you know, that young, three or four. And mm-hmm. certainly, you know, we often have people ask us, you know, is there a personality profile for teenagers? No, we absolutely. What we use for a 55-year-old is the same personality profile we use for a 13-year-old. So it really does help us see those traits. Now, one of the things that we we look at in terms of how this plays out then with the different personality styles is what is this child likely to be good at? We start to see what is this likely to look at, look like in terms of educational pursuits and ultimately careers. Kevin, you took kind of an unusual approach and I uh, talked about you in No More Dreaded Mondays, where I talked a lot about this idea of, of education and When you were in high school, even before you were in high school, you started racing BMX. So we would travel together and you really were good at BMX. So that was a really high priority for you. And we embraced that. It's one of those things. A child is bent. It was an interest of yours and we helped you pursue that. But because you were focused on that, you wanted to go to Boulder, Colorado to train in racing. Was that it or Fort Collins? Where was that? Fort Collins, but yeah, that area. For okay. Sure. All right. So when you, uh, as I recall, even before you officially graduated from high school, uh, we helped you make that move. So you're 17 years old. Is that correct? And went to. Yeah, I think so. All right. Yeah. And you went out to Boulder to train bicycle racing. At that point, you'd move from BMX to road racing. Mm-hmm. And so how, how, how did that unfold? And again, man, this has been some time ago. I mean, you're now 48 years old, so I don't remember all the details myself. But mm. instead of, I mean, I have a lot of academic credentials, mm. academic background. And so the expectation would be pretty clear that we want you to go to college. We didn't do that. How do you remember that kind of selection of choice where instead of going to college, at least at that time, you went to Colorado and pursued racing full time? I, I never enjoyed the traditional you know, academic arena. And, and I say that with kids now who do, I have something to do. And we, you know, of course lift that up for them, but I never did. And you taught me business. Um, actually you brainwashed me. Oh my. Uh, yeah. It's your, Ouch. it's your fault. Uh, but I did. That's what I knew. I knew business. All I understood was going after really the testimony that I give is going after something that you care about, something you enjoy, whether it's a, an altruistic effort of saving the world, or even if it's just something you enjoy, either one, I never really understood the concept of going after anything else. So, uh, you taught me business. I did that and I really did it. My motive was to afford my cycling habit before it actually paid anything. Not that it ever paid a whole lot, but, uh, so going after that, I never gave a second thought. I remember the day when I told you, man, I just don't really care to pursue college, which was no surprise at all to you. And the only thing I remember you saying is that's totally fine. There's going to be some things you'll shut the door on with not doing that, but there's plenty of things that have an open door. That's pretty much the conversation that I remember. And I took that to heart and you told me kind of like what Ashley said, you know, who's your teacher, every, everyone, everything, everywhere. And gosh, you, I mean, you also, and this is the thing that we have pursued with the kids is reading. Uh, just books. I mean, my education came from all the books you were, well, again, you know, it's your, your brain. Talk about brainwashing. Oh my god! I mean, just a little attitude problem. I had to go read or listen to Zig Ziglar, you know, which was <laughs> tragic. You would think that that would be haunting to me now instead of actually pursuing the guy. Uh, but that's, that's where you, you know, that's, that's where you really met my bent. That was my bent. I mean, that, that, that stuff all fit me. So, so you, well. you went to Colorado and then Ultimately, I mean, you, so you were racing full time. That was all you did. And tell us kind of the span of that, how racing was a primary focus for you for quite a long time. It was, I started BMX at 10 and did that. And you took me, you know, you drove me around the country when I, before I could drive on the national circuit there till I was 16. And then I kind of phased out of that, but had bought a road bike, a 10 speed literally at the time and was interested in that. And I think it took me about a year and I started racing that and found my love 
uh, in, in that competition and in the travel and in the culture of that. And I did that for a, a de- more than de- maybe 15 years, I guess. My last race was, I was 32. That's when we uh, had a team and uh, was still, still doing elite cycling then. Now amongst that, I did business things though. Uh, I had, you know, I had cycling as a full-time thing. We owned a team, but then I did various business things always. <clears throat> I mean, you, uh, you know, equipped me and I was doing automobile stuff at some point and then marketing. And then what I really went into was just sales and marketing for the most part, had one job for two years, a traditional job where I actually got a W2 in my life for two years, uh, with Churchill mortgage and Mike Hardwick back then. But after that, it was always looking at just the, you know, ideas, things I cared about, and so those were always married together, but then I kind of got my fill of cycling and went full-time just into different businesses, which I've had, had various ones. Now, there's a couple of things I want to pick up on in your story there and things that I've shared. A lot of our listeners will be aware of already. One is, uh, tell us about one of the businesses you described. You kind of alluded to one of the businesses that you had there when you were about 14 years old, because you wanted to be involved in a sport that required expensive equipment travel, hotels, and all of that. And our approach always was, hey, that's fantastic. You know, in the Miller home, that's fantastic. How are you going to make that happen? It's not mom and dad writing a check for it. How are you going to make that happen? So tell us about one of the businesses that you had in high school Mm -hmm. that allowed you to be able to afford that. Well, you were the consummate car guy. And I found out later in life that I'm not, but that's what I knew. You know, that's uh, my kids know what I do and uh, have some opportunities and things that may not be the best fit for them, but I have the opportunity. We have woodworking stuff, you know, at my house. So that's the kind of the muse. That's what they build and make things at farmer's market. You had cars. And so amongst that, at some point, your aftermarket accessories business, we were looking at window tanning. You sent me, yeah, as a 14, 15 year old kid with one of your employees down to Atlanta for uh, two days of a workshop, I think, to learn how to put window tinting on cars. And I came back. I did some for you at the business, but then transitioned that into using the garage at the house and putting a little ad and a little classifieds paper that we had, like the thrifty nickel or something like that. A little ad, we put a business line in my room. It seems like it cost 20 bucks a month. So when it rang, it was uh, good afternoon, Sunshield. How can I help you? Whether I answered or if mom answered it for us, uh, for me. And I would do those. I remember I'd buy a roll of window tent. It was must have been, I don't know, two feet by 100 feet. I don't know, some roll. And it cost about 100 bucks. And I could do about five cars out of that at 100 bucks a piece. Uh, and the, you know, the, the overhead of the little products you had to have were pretty minimal. And of course, the garage wasn't costing me anything. And that was the business that funded me well. So while my buddies were making minimum wage, which was, it seems like it was 375. Is that sound yeah, that relevant sounds, yeah, way back then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was, I think, I think I was making like 30 bucks an hour when I would do that. And I wouldn't work a full day, but man, I do a, do a car or two here and there and it would fund the next bike part that I needed or the next trip uh, that I needed. And that's something that I took on when I moved to Fort Collins, actually, at some point and needed some work, I got a job tent windows for a company that was right there. I didn't have my own garage, but I did it for them and then transitioned into doing some buildings and, and things. I think the, the, uh, chamber of commerce or some building in Fort Collins has at some point had window tent on it for me, but it was a great skill to learn and, mm-hmm. and be able to use wherever I went a trade. All right. So you started, started racing, you packed a lot of things in there. So you started racing when you were 10 years old ended when you were 32. Um, so is, is that when you decided to go back to college? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Went back and got my doctorate and having children, apparently. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah well, procreation. What, what happened is, uh, I mean, just kind of unpack that a little bit. By then you had a lot of different life skills that you had already proven your uh, success in business. And so you didn't go back to college. And when, when I, when you were racing and when I wrote no more dreaded Mondays, I talked about that where people would question us, your mom and me about you not being in school. And my line was, you know, well, Kevin may decide to go to college at some point, but right now he's too busy getting an education. When I compare uh, traveling in Europe, you know, living in a different culture, doing the kind of things that you were doing, you know, doing well, even winning, winning races and getting the rewards of that. When you compare that to sitting in a classroom, sitting in a seat, 
being forced to regurgitate what the guy in the front of the room says to you. Now, again, we don't want to, you know, diminish the value of traditional education. I'm an example of, you know, spending a lot of time there and getting degrees because I enjoy the process a lot. I always frame education as there are two reasons for getting especially higher degrees. One is so that you get a piece of paper, so somebody will give you a job. If you do it for that reason only, you're likely to be disappointed. But secondly, it's the opportunity for personal development. And if you see it as such, then it really has value that nobody can ever take away from you. It's not measured by whether or not you got a job. It's how did you develop personally? So I spent a lot of time getting traditional degrees because I enjoyed the process so thoroughly. Ashley did go to college, traditional school, got her degree from the University of Tennessee, degree in psychology, came to work for me, has that degree, you know, helped her in the work that she does here at 48 Days. My goodness, yes. One of her areas of specialty is DISC. And in doing DISC, a lot of times working with people who we very quickly uncover other kind of life issues, other challenges that they're dealing with that uh, you're able to help walk them through very competently. Uh, Jared, your path in terms of uh, education, again, uh, talk about the time when you were very young in school and some of the challenges that you certainly remember and we, as your mom and dad do as well. Yeah, I certainly had some challenges. I I, I never fit into the into the box too much. Any box you put out there, I had a hard time fitting in. That's true. <laughs> uh, Not the normal kid. <clears throat> no, and I, I was, you know, a, a, you know, always a thinker, and and I in the traditional school environment, I felt very stifled. I felt, you know, I have dyslexia, so that was an issue. Uh, just you know, sitting under fluorescent lights and just some practical things like that were were very impractical for me. Um, so it, I wasn't sure, you know, did I not fit in or was I? you know, flawed in some way. It was a, a lot of that kind of stuff. And you guys were always just like, well, you're, you're just a human. We'll figure it out. <laughs> it wasn't, Hey, you're flawed. And I appreciate that by the way. <laughs> and, and we, we worked through those things and then you found, uh, some alternative schooling situations. I started homeschooling when I was fourth grade or something like that. Cause we were moving from Bowling Green to Nashville and that worked out that way. And we, we tested it out, worked pretty well. Mom was terrified and did an amazing job anyway. Yeah. And, uh, and we, we had some amazing experiences with that. And then later I, I tried freshman year of high school. Suffice it to say that was a bomb. <laughs> and then uh, came back and did this alternative learning kind of uh, group school scenario with other homeschoolers. And it was amazing. That was 25 years ago or something. All the guys that I was in that school with, I just went on a sailing trip. I'm 41. We're still that close. So I, I had this amazing, rich educational experience for the guy that didn't do school well. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, I want to kind of jump forward in that as well. So you got a degree just by us piecing together opportunities that were almost legal enough to get you. A, it's not a the diploma. kind of diploma there that is sort of <laughs> frowned upon that kind of, yeah. So you have your high school diploma and, but you are an avid learner. You learn Describe even today, you know, your thirst for learning, but how you do that best. Hmm. Yeah, I man, I I found out after I got out of the school scene how much I really love to learn because I was sort of then it was on my terms, you know. Absolutely. And I just started reading books, which was very difficult for me because I'm dyslexic. It took me like a half a year to read a book. Uh, so I, I, you know, explored that. And you know, the internet came out and I discovered I could read better on a screen than I could on a piece of paper. So that was a step. Then Audible came out. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you, Audible. I changed my life. You know, so now I listen to about a book a week. Um, sometimes it depends on the book. And then I really study stuff. Sometimes then I'll get the physical book and go through that. But I'm a studier. I don't just read to get to the end of the book. I want to know it and be able to, you know, apply it to my life. And I, I studied like crazy on, on videos on YouTube and, you know, I've, I've really been blessed by technology in that way. And, and I'm a fan of that consequently. Yeah. Now with that, and again, I, I don't know many people that have such an insatiable thirst for new learning as you do. And we discuss, you know, reading, we discuss deep 
philosophical and spiritual things because of your hunger in those areas and you being so well-read in those areas. Inasmuch as you struggled in a traditional academic system and didn't go on beyond high school in a traditional way, you then went to Africa. You were in Africa for 10 years. And while you were over there, and not, not only uh, during that period of time, you know, we wrote, wrote together Wisdom Meets Passion, where we have uh, pretty awesome content in that, I think. And your addition to that was amazing. Uh, when we did the audio of that, remember those excruciating Indeed, I days? Do. That was my first time on the mic, really, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we did the audio for that. It was pr- uh, published by Thomas Nelson. So they set us up to do the audio, which I've always done myself, enjoy doing. Well, you don't read as in, in the same way mm-hmm. that most people do. You read a short section and almost create a photo of that in your mind where then you can recite it without even looking at the words yeah. doing the audio was excruciating. I suggest mostly for the people in the studio outside <laughs> of myself. <laughs> well, I suggested having somebody else stand in, but you really wanted to do that. Yeah. It just seemed like to take ownership of your content, you wanted to be the one voicing it as well. It took a while, but it came across really well. That's one of the books that's very popular and audible which means passion. So you did that now in your time in Africa, you have always been drawn to what the Bible calls the least of these, people who are most marginalized. You want to help them. You know, as a little kid, you would sit in front of the TV and watch Michael Jackson. You know, we are the world and cry because, you know, it wasn't fair. Those little kids were suffering and we weren't. So you were drawn to that, drawn to help people and ultimately ended up in Africa helping people who are extremely marginalized. In that period of time, you... Well, let's just kind of talk through a little bit. It deserves kind of breaking that down because the the normal model for doing that, when we're talking about how we develop business or ministry and all those things, the normal model for helping poor people in Africa is to come back to where mom and dad live in Franklin, Tennessee, one of the wealthiest counties in the country, and ask for money. How'd that plan work out? Well, I went that route originally, yeah, and uh, not so well. Part of it, I think didn't work so well because I'd never really believed in it either. I just thought, well, this is what you do, you know, with a nonprofit. I had a 501c3 here and in Rwanda. That was quite a feat just setting those up. Anyway, I, I, you know, and I had you in my ear too, you know, kind of saying, hey, could you, could you do this better? <laughs> you know, could you innovate here? And I, I, that was constantly pushing me in, in, into different, a different way of thinking about it. And, you know, ultimately, we ended up creating Keza. This well, let me back up. I, as an activist, since I was seventeen, starting with American Indian Movement, I've always, you know, and, and even in school, I think that caused me to question systems. Just like, what is this system designed to do? We do that with our kids with education. It's like, what is this public school system designed to do? Is that what I want my kid to to go through? Is that going to bring them out on the other side? You know, how's that going to work out? So. In questioning these systems, I started looking at like what what systems are causing problems, you know, and I went to Africa and I saw there's a system here that's causing a problem. Part of that in Rwanda was the story. It was just the story of genocide. It's the only story they had. I thought, what if they had a different story? Um, So we created Keza, meaning beautiful in Kenya, Rwanda. And it was this, and it wasn't just paper bead jewelry. We took paper beads, that that trade that was uh, locally popular and said, what if we did something different with it? So I called in Rhode Island School of Design, brought in interns. They came over. We did a accredited program, which was a big feat. We did that and did big presentations at RISD and brought in another level of design. And then our stuff was designed more to go on the red carpet. The whole pr- project was, you know, obviously we make higher profit margins, but we also were telling a different story. These women weren't just poor old women on the street, you know, trying to make it happen. They were women that were designing these amazing products showing up on the red carpet on Donna Summer, you know? And so that got me into the story thing, which led me to branding, which is what I do now. And and just like, how do we create a different story here? And yeah, but it started with questioning systems and and social agreements and saying like, what if we looked at this a different way? And I appreciate that. Now, Now, with that, then it changed the economic model. So you had somebody that you really wanted to help these women who were totally marginalized, most of them had been had become widows because of the genocide in Rwanda. 
So you created this model where they were making jewelry, but that changed the economics as well. Instead of coming back here to Franklin, Tennessee and asking for donations for your worthy cause, you had a nonprofit that was self-funded because the jewelry was high-end, sold at high profit margins, which then would pay the women for doing work, where instead of just receiving handouts that made them more dependent, they could hold their head high, have a sense of self-esteem at having done that, and could actually make as uh, money equivalent to like a school teacher in that mm-hmm. culture, but totally changed the model. You were doing other things all the time during that to provide for your own income, so you didn't, weren't dependent on any of the money coming out of that. But Now, here's where I want to go with that. So you created this model like that. You talked about you brought in interns from Rhode Island School of Design, Pepperdine, and places like that. Then we found that when you came back to the States, you would get requests from prestigious universities like Vanderbilt University right here to come in and speak to their Masters of Business MBA programs about microenterprise. We found it a little amusing and perhaps ironic that here is a kid who didn't do well in school, didn't go to college at all, couldn't get into these universities if you begged them, and then they ask you to come in and teach to their upper-level students. Does that a, Was that just kind of a, a fun experience, or how did that feel to you? It was, it was a bit surreal, and I, I remember the first time I walked into Vanderbilt, I was working with uh, Jermaine Boyer, one of the professors there that I really respect, business uh, uh, professor. And I I remember walking in, it was my first gig like that. And I thought, man, are they going to like check my credentials at the door or something? Cause I got nothing. <laughs> I, I, I walked in off, you know, out of, you know, a plane off coming in from Rwanda or whatever. And yeah, but I, I just, you know, kind of allowed that to flow and, and everybody was very welcoming. They wanted to hear what I had to say. And I stepped into that and yeah, it was a really interesting experience. And, and I enjoyed talking to all those business students about what we were doing there. And, and we were really challenging a lot of systems, a lot of ways that that was before there was a kind of an ethical fashion label on every corner like there is now, but we were really on the front end of that movement. So we we're having to kind of push a bit, but we found that a lot of the business students whatever, were really eager for that kind of pushing. And now we see some of that stuff that we were doing then is the norm now for them growing up. Yeah. Well, that's also an example of how the real world works. If, if I have somebody that I want to have come out here and do a landscape design, the chances of me asking for a resume or credentials are pretty slim. I want to know, what have you done in the last two years? I mean, we have an example of a you know beautiful water feature here at our house. And the reason we chose the guy that we had to do that is because he did all the water features at the local zoo here. And they're just magnificent. So we saw his work. It wasn't just, gee, what are your credentials? Where'd you get trained? That was never an issue. And most people that we use in business, even people we use in in 48 days, I mean, we have people on our team, you know, like Sheila and Andy, I have no idea what their academic backgrounds are. I simply know what the work that they produce for us. And it's astounding. So we embrace them and want them to be our people. But, uh, Again, it's just uh, life kind of unfolds in interesting ways like that. And you of the three of her children who was were least drawn to traditional academics at all, you know, had those opportunities now to come back in and speak in universities and uh, have been part of some pretty major conferences as well. Yeah, I kind of believe that goes back to, you know, St. Francis of Assisi's quote, preach and if necessary, use words. And I believe that that is something that you have spoken so many times on. You, you've said before, you know, the best uh, the best example of, uh, of a successful coach is a life well lived. Looking at our actions, and that's something that you instilled in us, is it's not just about the label, whether it's a credential from college or because we're Dan Miller's children or anything like that. That is not a testament of who we are. What's a testament of who we are is in our actions. It's in our daily life and how we are presenting and engaging and connecting with others. And so we have seen that time and time again, not only in our own lives, but the people that we do we do choose to work with and we choose to commune with are these references, these referrals from friends or the the work that we've seen them do. And it's in their actions and in their relationships that we are really creating that that community and those people that we really believe in. 
Now, it's interesting. I want to, just a couple other things I want to touch on here. But it's interesting that all three of you have podcast. Now, this is where it's it, it's kind of interesting to kind of unpack this because I have a podcast. You know, I was one of those early guys. I've had a podcast since December of 2009, so almost 10 years now. I love podcasting. Did I somehow coerce you guys? And I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't pay you to do that, but somehow you all recognize that in your own sphere and you're doing very different kind of things that podcasting was a significant way to connect with people, share your voice, share your enthusiasm for however you want to impact the world. Now, go ahead, Jared. You got something to say there, obviously. No, I was going <laughs> to butt in. I just did it to win your approval, Dad. <laughs> I was going to say we all really like to talk a lot. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not uh, – yeah, that's definitely a, a Miller tradition. Um, I I remember – I was doing a YouTube channel kind of exploring with that and so on, and I remember very vividly uh, – it was a few years ago – and you said to me, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? And – I remember kind of gasping for a second. I was like, oh my gosh, that's dad's territory. And he thinks that I could do that. I was very honored by that. And almost, I felt very inspired to do that. And it was literally like a couple of weeks later, I was doing a podcast and I needed liberation, I guess. <laughs> and I went out and did that. But when it came to what I was talking about, now it's had some evolutions over the years, but I ultimately, my three big questions on my podcast is who are you? Why are you here? And what are you committed to cause? Where did I get that? <laughs> um, so it's, it, it was all that, that you know, the, the Akiva stories and the things like that, and that, that I was so inspired by in my upbringing and, and even now continuing in, in, in listening to your work that has kind of inspired me to just say, okay, here's how I do that. Here's my dance with that discussion. And that's what I do in my podcast. All right. And your podcast is called? Noetic. And noetic is a scientific term for the inner knowing that we have. And there you go. We explore that. Oh, Kevin, I want to pull you in on that too, because your your path is one that's pretty interesting. We, we mentioned uh, earlier that as a child, we didn't have a whole lot of uh, spankings, although we did have some of those. You know, hey, can, you, can you tell us, Kevin being the oldest, what was the one thing that was not tolerated in our family? There was one thing, you could do a lot of things with a lot of grace, but one thing was not a lot. <laughs> I'm getting mouths from the siblings. I was going to say disrespect, uh, number one. Did I miss it? Disrespect through lying. Oh, gosh, yeah. And I remember a distinct spanking I got from some significant lying. <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah, lying was just uh, the unpardonable sin in our house. <clears throat> well, when, when you kids needed um, some kind of reprimand, we didn't do a lot of timeouts or sitting in the corner and all that. But we did what we called attitude adjustments. And it was based on my own reading and growing at that point. You know, Joanne, your your mother and I, you were voracious readers and learning. We both came from homes where there were patterns that we didn't want to model or repeat. So we were learning a lot of things on our own. And one of the books that impacted me greatly was Zig Ziglar's See You at the Top. Zig became a virtual mentor of mine and then got to meet him later. But we used that as part of your homeschooling curriculum, see you at the top. So when there was something done that didn't, uh, wasn't allowed in our family, you kids would have attitude adjustments, which was a term we got from Zig. And so when something was done that shouldn't have been done, uh, Kevin, you as a 10 year old would be sat down and maybe listen to Zig for five minutes, just to want a, a short audio clip. And he's got that really distinctive voice. We all know. And he'd talk about stinking thinking and check up from the neck up the story of the pump and getting cooked in the squat and fleas and biscuits and all those wonderful stories that he has. Those in as much as there was some resistance. And I remember even times when we would go on long trips for your BMX racing and instead of just rock and roll music. Now we did a lot of U2 and Joshua Tree and those things back then, but we also did a lot of listening to cassettes where you heard those principles. Now life happens. You grew up, you went off to training, you went to Europe, raced, got married, had kids and all of that. Somehow along the way, you became friends with Zig Ziglar's son, Tom. 
How did that happen? I don't even know how that happened. You. Uh, I think I met him through you, and it might have been during the time when I worked with you and publishing, and maybe you spoke for them or something like that, but I got to know Tom, and then when I was doing my work in helping people who are in traditional employment who wanted to pursue self-employment and kind of made a name for myself and had an audience, I, in talking with Tom, got to speak for them, for Ziegler, his success 2.0 back when they did those broadcasts to, uh, you know, their tens of thousands of people. I got to do that. So I went down there, stayed at his house, spent a day with Zig. It was about a, a year before Zig passed away and just kind of solidified a relationship. And then at some point, Tom came out to Colorado, stayed at our house and had a significant campfire experience uh, out of the bonfire at our place with my kids. And I asked Tom point blank. I said, Hey, what's, I got some, I got a, questions, all these guys, all these influencers out there. And I saw them, I went to their stages with my dad and, you know, rattled off names, but some, some reason Zig stood out. Why is it that he was the one where I was disillusioned with some of the other ones, especially seeing them off stage, but not Zig. He was a standout. Why was that? And asked Tom that, and Tom shared openly with our family and, and the, the, what he came out with is Zig was a, was a broken man. Uh, broken under the Lord and and uh, really found his place in Christ and how that translated then to the stage and what they saw from the legacy of Zig. It's just a, a really heart moment <clears throat> with Tom and with my family. And it was from that, just developing a, a relationship with, with Tom. And then when Zig passed away in my own, as Jared talked about brand and my own concerns about where's the message and the brand and the story going to go of Ziggler with Zig not here, that Tom asked me to join them kind of as a marketing consultant, just as they were looking at where the brand was going to go. And I found the podcast that had been dormant for about, and I had been podcasting small audience, but had been doing that um, just as another medium. I'm a writer. I'd rather write, but it's such a growing medium. I was doing podcasting, found the podcast with Ziggler. It had been dormant for a year and a half, was still getting a hundred thousand downloads a month. Wow! I said, man, here's an opportunity. And Tom said, run with it. So we did. So it was just kind of a side thing that I did along with other other things with them. And then it grew to where it was the only thing I did. And that is for Ziggler, for the most part, that's that's the one thing that I do there. And the show has is, is opened up a lot of doors and become a big channel for, for Ziggler and a big platform for me. I'm incredibly grateful. Boy, no kidding. I mean, I love how that unfolded. So here's the little kid who was forced to get disciplined by listening to Zig. <laughs> and now you grew up and ho now you are the voice of the Ziggler organization. We can go back again. My, my brainwashing folks, just listen, Dan Miller brainwashed me. So there you go. He did it to you too. You're not the first. <laughs> uh, we like to say inspired and motivated over brainwashing. There you go. Yeah. Hey, and on a, you know, serious note there too, we, we looked, at, with our children, you know, the difference between punishment and discipline, you know, and I'm big on just being self-disciplined and, and I, well, all of us are, I know that, um, that was, a, you didn't punish us. That wasn't punishment. It was discipline. And you were, you were bringing a discipline into our lives of kind of self-correcting our, our mindset and, and getting rid of our stinking thinking. <laughs> and, and that we've all carried that forward in our own ways of taking that discipline forward. And now with our own children, we're very quick to help them to be disciplined uh, and, you know, and committed and so on. But, but not, it's very rare that we ever have a, a situation where we have to punish quote unquote a kid. Uh, and I think that's been a big thing that we've carried forward in our family for sure. All right. Okay. Uh, so uh, Kevin, your podcast obviously is the Ziegler podcast. You know, the, the power of that name being such a highly respected name, just the name opens so many doors. And yeah, I love the way that it's created a platform for you. I mean, you can get pretty much anybody in the world on as a guest because of the power of that name. So you've had all the luminaries, all the big authors have been on there and you've got people knocking on your door all the time to be on there. But what an opportunity to... And, and it was one of those things, you know, we talk, people talk about, well, gee, I wasn't lucky. Well, we, we define luck as when preparation meets opportunity. So the preparation that you had been through all your entire life prepared you for that moment when you and Tom had that discussion, realized the Ziegler podcast had been dormant. You were the voice 
And everything in your preparation prepared you for that very moment. Can I say just real quick, Dad, and I know you were about to go a different direction, but on that, I mean, again, from the teaching and from Ziegler's stuff, from how to win friends and influence people, I met Tom. I nurtured a relationship with him. Uh, one, because I, you know, I was enamored by him to some degree, but I also, I wanted exposure from them for the business that I had. I nurtured a relationship with him, uh, that, and, and really reached out with what can I do for them for probably a year and a half before I finally broached the idea of me speaking on their behalf. I mean, so I, I, it was a, it was a sales job as well. And Tom knows that to get on there. And so, yeah, I had where luck, uh, you know, where preparation meets opportunity. I prepared and prepared and prepared for that to finally get that shot. And that's what really led me in the door. So yeah, it was, was it luck? Sure. But I, man, I worked for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom has his own new book out, his first book on his own, Choose to Win. He was just here in Nashville. Uh, I had the pleasure of having dinner with him a couple weeks ago, Kevin, with your oldest son, Caleb, who is here. And we had a really meaningful conversation that impacted Caleb dramatically. So the next generation get it. Speaking of the next generation, hey, I want want a a one-minute wrap-up from each of you here. All of you have children. A lot of things are changing. Education is changing. Work models are changing. We're seeing these big companies are being kind of broken up. There's a lot of return to kind of the mom and pop kind of businesses. We know there are a lot of entrepreneurs. We know that's not a model that's going to fit everybody. But with the the kids you've got, what what kind of future do you see for your children, my grandchildren? Hmm. The sky's the limit. They can, this is something that because of our, our emphasis on that growth mindset, it's really what we, we open the door to pursuing their passions at a very young age. And we talk about uh, on the podcast that I have, it's about intentional family. It's so much the premise of what 48 days is about, but I take it where we spend so much time focused on our, um, on our businesses, creating our vision statements and our mission statements. But how often do we sit back and really do that with our, with our home? So often marriage just happens and kids just happen. And then we react to what's, what is thrown our way, especially with small children, you can get stuck in reaction mode. So really looking at being intentional about pursuing excellence, excellence. We say, my husband says, you know, you're always a genius today. I think I know so much, but oh my gosh, I look at where I was at 18 and thank God I'm not in that same situation. And I'm eager for at 48 when I look back and I'm super excited about the things I've learned. So we jump in and we learn with our children. We pursue their passions and we go deep into it and uncover new things about all of us that kind of propels us forward to where we want to go. All right. Awesome. Now you guys grew up again with a very loving, nurturing mama who is still queen mama for all of us. Joanne, uh, she and I just celebrated our 51st anniversary a couple days ago. So you had that kind of overview and protection as well as encouragement one of the things that we did when you guys were very young was develop a mission statement for our family. Mm-hmm. So not just for business, but for our family, where we established a mission statement. This is what we live by so that any action in our family could be weighed against the mission statement. How, what about what you just did there? You know, Did that embrace our mission statement or did it violate it? Jared, you've got little kiddos. You've got a, a pair of twins who are now three years old. But what do you envision for your children growing up in this world? Man, I we, we kind of look at things formulaically and I think, well, I want them to, you know, I want to instill confidence and, and self-worth in them and things like that so that they can kind of go out and do whatever it is they want to do. But we look at that, we look at their relationships and how are you kind of flowing through this life and, um, and really trying to... Uh, help them to understand how to see the world in a very beautiful and peaceful way. And we're in, we're all very creative. We explore the wonder discussion a lot and going out and seeking the wonder in the world. And I I think with these, with with my kiddos, I, I don't know. I I envision uh, a fulfilling life for them because they're, they've got some of these, these tenants, you know, in their lives that are speaking, um, love into their lives and they're, they have that foundation of love. And I think that can take them anywhere they want to go. So it's really been the focus on that, on how do they see the world? Let's help, let's help them to see the world in this beautiful way so that they can go out and do whatever it is they want to do. All right. Awesome. Kevin with 10 children, 
there's not going to be a cookie cutter plan. You know, we could have in, in all of your children, we could have, you know, doctors, lawyers, pharmacists, those kind of things, but also a lot of other creative things. And, and with the way that work opportunities are changing, there are opportunities for your children that we can't even describe yet because they don't even exist. I mean, there are going to be those kind of opportunities because things are changing. So how do you create kind of framework and expectations for what your kids are going to do? I like the word you just use framework. It's one of my favorite things. Like I'm not going to give them a cookie cutter approach or a black and white, but a framework for what is going to give them fulfillment and success. And uh, gosh, the purpose. We always talk about that word purpose and passion have so much, so much behind them, so much good and bad baggage and, and glory with them. But I can't deny that. I think if we instill one thing in the kids, it's that that's where they're going to find their best success for their heart and their wallets is in finding something they care about and something that serves people. I just, the, the, the people I interview, I can't get away from that. The folks that really are jazzed about life and doing something meaningful have found purpose. They, they are meaningful to somebody else out there, to another person, to another audience. And there's nothing more I want for my kids to do that. And if it's at a pharmacy drug counter uh, as a pharmacist or if it's as an entrepreneur, that's okay. But my job as dad is to give them exposure and help lead them along the right path that fits them. You know, and a lot of the times we measure success in economic terms. In our culture, that's certainly true. Gee, you know how much income is the first thing that we kind of think about. You know, we see grandkids developing and of course people that we know and care about who have chosen paths that don't reward them in a great way economically and yet they're world changers we can think about people like mother Teresa, obviously who didn't care about economic gain but is changing the world out there well guys hey we're going to wrap it up with that man i love this conversation um so proud of each of you and the lives that you're living and what an exciting thing to see these the next generation coming up. You know, sometimes we talk about building a business and all the employees and or you start to get involved in a multi-level marketing company and you talk about your downline. Man, my downline is here today. This is what's important to me. You guys and the, the kiddos that you guys have, the spouses that you have. What an amazing legacy. Wish we had time to talk more about legacy itself, but uh, this is it. We've covered a lot of things here. Thanks so much for, for being here, for making the effort to come to the family compound here. Spend this time together this week. It's been a delight.